few years back, I woke up early one Saturday morning. It was it was springtime, and uh, I was out in my garage, you know, kind of putting around and getting things ready for uh, the summer and checking my lawnmower and all the fun stuff you do that time of the year. And uh, I was out there in the front yard, and all of a sudden, uh, our family, we live right over by South Center Lake, not too far, about a block away from the boat launch there. And uh, we heard out in, out in my front yard, I, all of a sudden I heard the sound of a motorboat engine that was revving just like like unusually revving uh it, it was just a really strange thing like every couple every 10 seconds or so it was just like and it just it sounded like some guy was just doing donuts in the bay there by the boat launch it, it was just really weird and i'm thinking like you know after like two three minutes of this I'm like, it's got to be, you know, some, you know, punk kid just screwing around on the wake out there having fun. And I was like, man, I'd sure hate to be one of the neighbors close by. Because, I mean, I was quite far away and I could still hear this boat, you know, and then it would die down for a few seconds. And then all of a sudden, start up again. And it was just going on like this for like 15 minutes. And and I was if I hadn't been tied up, you know, changing my oil or whatever I was doing, I, I probably would have walked down there and tried to figure out what was going on. Later that afternoon, I ended up talking to one of my neighbors. And sure enough, my neighbor had walked down to the boat launch because he was curious, you know, what in the world is going on down there? Well, it turns out a guy, it was early in the, in the season, a guy had backed his motorboat down into the boat launch and he had started making his way, uh, or he had, he had left his boat there. He went and he parked his trailer. He came back, he started heading out into the bay and he realized his boat was filling up with water. He had forgotten to put the drain plug in his boat. Now, he's all alone. He already parked the car in the trailer, and he's out there in a boat that is quickly taking on water. And so he did the only thing he could do. He was revving his engine to get the boat up on plane to try to help, you know, drain the water as he was going fast, you know, doing circles around the lake. He, he was doing this basically to keep his boat afloat. And to keep it from sinking. Well, I found out later that one of my other neighbors had gone down there heard, hearing the commotion. And the guy was trying to just get close enough to the dock and stop long enough where he could hand off his keys. He, he first had to explain, you know, what was going on. And then he had to hand off his keys to a stranger and trust this guy to back his trailer in. And he's, you know, running around the bay trying to keep his boat from sinking. And sure enough, they finally got the boat back on the trailer and, and helped this guy out. But it was it was crazy. And, you know, sad thing is, is I've had that same experience myself, so I can unfortunately relate. But I was reminded of that story this week because in studying for our passage this morning, I came across a, a powerful quote from, from the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody once said this. He says, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. You know, that's an interesting image to think about. Right, that the ships are made for the sea, but if the sea gets into the ship, it's big trouble. And this is really a powerful quote when we think about it in light of the the story of the nation of Israel during the the period of the judges. If you recall the the history of Israel in the Old Testament that we've talked about in recent weeks, the the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and and God miraculously delivered them out of slavery in Egypt through Moses. And and then Moses led the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness for 40 years as they prepared to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, the the land that God had promised Abraham a thousand years earlier that this would be the, the homeland of the Jewish people. 
And so Moses led the Israelites to the promised land. And then Moses' successor, Joshua, led the people of Israel in conquering the promised land, moving in in the initial conquest and, and beginning to root out the, the pagan nations that were there, the, the wicked and depraved people who lived there that God had told them to, to cast out of the land. But, but if you recall from our recent journey in the book of Judges, the Israelites had failed to remain faithful to the calling that God had given them. Before moving into the promised land, they had made a covenant with God. God said to the Israelites, look at as long as you honor me and serve me and are faithful to me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But God says, you've got to serve me, you've got to honor me. And as we've seen in the book of Judges, the, the people of Israel, when Joshua's generation passed away, sadly, the next generation forgot God. And they forsook God. They turned their backs on Him. And they began to, to follow the idols and the, and the religions of the people of the lands around them, the pagan nations around them. And in doing that, that, that brought in great trouble into their lives as they made these accommodations to the pagan culture around them. Like the ship that was made to be in the sea, the Israelites unfortunately allowed the sea to get into the ship. And the book of Judges shares with us this, this downward spiral, this, this ongoing cycle of rebellion and despair and crying out to God and God in His grace relieving them again. And, and yet they continue over and over and over again to forsake the Lord. This is really the, the theme that we see in the book of Judges, the, the Israelites' failure to keep their covenant with God. And if you remember from last week, we saw in Judges chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, God shared with them the consequences of this rebellion. In, in Judges 2, God says to the Israelites, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and since they have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And remember last week we talked about God said, I'm going to do this to test Israel. I'm going to allow these pagan nations to remain among them, to test them. And they're going to be a constant thorn in their side. And they're going to be there to, to test Israel's obedience, whether they'll remain faithful to me or whether they'll continue to turn their backs on me. And so this is the, the ongoing cycle that we see in the book of Judges. Last week we talked about this, this cycle that will take place seven times throughout the book of Judges. The cycle of rebellion and then retribution, consequence for their sin. And then the retribution leading to the Israelites' remorse and, and crying out to God. And then God bringing relief. But then sadly, the Israelites repeat the cycle once again. And, and as we're going to see throughout Judges, the cycle actually begins to spin out of control downwards into greater and greater degrees of depravity and wickedness. And it's a tragic story of what sin does when we allow sin to creep into our lives. Well, this morning, as we continue on into chapter 3, we're going to begin to look at the specific stories of the judges. The, these men and women that God raised up as deliverers for the nation of Israel when they found themselves in this place of rebellion and remorse. And God, in His amazing grace, brings these judges, these deliverers, these, these heroes to save His people. Today we're going to see the, the first two of these seven cycles in the book of Judges. And we're going to see three different judges that God raises up. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. So, some really fascinating stories here today in chapter 3 that we're going to see. Um, 
I'm going to just warn you, some of these stories are not pleasant. There's some gruesome material here in the book of Judges. And uh, it's only going to get even more gruesome as we go forward in the coming weeks. But we need to read these stories. God's given them to us for our, for our guidance. And so in these stories, we're going to see how God used these three judges. But more than that, we're going to see the stories of, of an amazing God, a God of amazing grace. So, so let's take a look at Judges chapter 3 this morning. We're in verses 7 through 31. Judges 3, 7 through 31. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals in the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the, at the idols near Gilgal. And he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind them and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to me, said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. 
So they went down after him and they seized the fjords, fjords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they, kill, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. Now subsequent to this time, the Philistines on the other side of the nation of Israel were trying to take advantage of this. And so the Philistines rose up thinking the Israelites were bothered with the Moabites on the other side of the country. And it was during this time after Ehud that Shamgar, the son of Anath, came forward. And he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat. And he also saved Israel. And Israel entered into a period of rest at that point for 80 years. Interesting stories, aren't they? 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture, friends. Even stories like Ehud's and Shamgar's. Stories that we sometimes wonder, why, why is this even in the Bible? But friends, there's important messages that we can learn from studying these stories Specifically, important messages about the nature of our great God. See, while these are stories of three different judges and the way that they delivered Israel, they're really more stories about who our God is. In fact, in these stories, we're reminded of three things about the nature of our great God. The first thing that we're reminded of in the stories of Israel's first three judges here today is that we have a sovereign God a God of grace. We see in these stories the sovereign grace of God. Our, our passage here this morning begins in chapter 3, verse 7, and here we find the nation of Israel starting down this slippery slope of compromise following Joshua's generation. As we saw last week in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, Joshua, Judges here tells us there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And this is where our story picks up. At the beginning of this period of, of Othniel, verse 7 tells us about the, the reality of Israel's compromise. And, and we see here in verse 7 what was at the heart of Israel's compromise. The, there were two things at the heart of Israel's compromise. The, the first thing that we see here in verse 7 is that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's an important observation, friends, because it reminds us first and foremost that God is the one who defines what is true. They, they didn't do evil in their sight. They did evil in God's sight. He's the one who defines what is true. He defines what is good and bad, what is moral and immoral, what is evil and what is just. It is God who is the arbiter of truth. And this is an important reminder for us today because we live in a world that so often gets this reality very confused. Instead of looking to God as the one who defines truth, our world today has embraced a, a philosophy of relativism that says, no, no, there is no God, there is no absolute truth. We define truth. We determine what is true, what is good, what is right and wrong. And what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. 
And that's the prevailing philosophy in our world today. This, this relativism has given rise to, to another philosophy known as pluralism because we say that there is no absolute truth and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Well, well, our culture now says, well, because there is no absolute truth, all truths are basically the same. And so it really doesn't matter what you believe. And we champion in our culture today this philosophy of pluralism. That it doesn't matter what a person believes, as long as they sincerely hold their beliefs, that's really all that matters at the end of the day. And this belief has given rise in our culture to what I call a politically correct or, or woke form of tolerance. Woke tolerance in our culture today says that you have to uncritically accept all people in the areas of beliefs and practice and lifestyle. And if you don't uncritically accept everyone in these three areas, you are given the label of intolerant. And in our culture today, friends, there's no worse name to be called than to be called intolerant. And see, this all stems from this idea that we are the ones who determine what is true. But Judges reminds us that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, see, our view of truth and morality is irrelevant. All that matters is what our Creator God has defined as truth. But yet when we forget this, we find our culture moving in some very wicked and perverse directions. Today, the nation of Canada, churches all over Canada, hundreds, maybe thousands of pastors today, are preaching biblical messages on God's revealed truth on human sexuality. All over Canada today, faithful Bible-preaching churches are, are preaching sermons on God's Word in regards to human sexuality. Now, why? Why are they doing that? They're doing that because this past month, the Canadian government passed a bill called Canadian Bill C-4, which literally criminalizes the biblical view of human sexuality criminalizes it. In the preamble of that bill, it literally calls the biblical view of human sexuality a myth that God created two genders, that God intended sex to be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman. The Canadian government officially decreed that to be a myth, and they have now criminalized any attempt to try to encourage somebody out of homosexuality or out of the transgender lifestyle, that that is now criminal behavior, criminal, criminal speech. Even praying for somebody can be deemed a criminal activity according to this law. And so today in Canada, churches all over the nation are taking a stand saying, we are not going to bow to Caesar in this. We don't care what the culture says, we follow God. He is the one who defines truth. And so today we stand with our brothers and sisters in Canada in making that proclamation. And even if it costs us greatly, we will never stop proclaiming the truth of God's Word. The, the culture says to the church, no, no, come on, you've got to follow us. You've got to get on the right side of history. But friends, understand this. You are never on the right side of history if you're on the wrong side of God's will. And that's the message that we see so clearly here in the book of Judges, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Secondly, we see here in verse 7 that not only did they do evil in the sight of the Lord, but they turned their back on him in pursuit of the idols of the pagan culture around them. And this is really the common pattern of sin throughout history. There's nothing new under the sun, friends. 
This is where rebellion always stems from. It stems from the idea that we know better than God. It stems from the idea that, that yes, God has said this, but you know what, I think this is, is the way I want to go. And so we turn our backs on God's will and we go our own way. This is what the Apostle Paul described in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, starting in verse 21, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's an interesting passage here, isn't it? What Paul says. And you have to wonder, who's Paul talking about here? I mean, is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about Rome? Is he talking about us? Friends, understand, it's all the same. And the end result is always the same. When we turn our backs on God, as Paul says here three times in Romans chapter 1, God gave them up. God gave them up to their sin. God gave them up to their sin. Three times Paul emphasizes that reality. See, friends, God in His righteousness will allow us to reap the fruit of our sin and rebellion against Him. This is true for individuals. It's true for families, it's true for churches, it's true for nations. And this is exactly what took place in the cycles of rebellion that we find in our passage this morning. As a result of Israel's compromise, God gave them up. In our stories today, this meant subjugation and slavery to, to foreign enemies. Kushan Rishathayim, that his name, Kushan Rishathayim, means doubly wicked. Can you imagine how oppressive that guy must have been? His name literally means doubly wicked. For eight years, they were under the reign of the king of Mesopotamia, this doubly wicked leader. And then Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years, paying tribute and, and under slavery to him. And this was all a result of God's righteous judgment. Friends, understand this. Make no mistake about it. God is a just and righteous God. And in His holiness, He cannot tolerate sin. And so to teach His people obedience, God strengthened Israel's enemies and He sold them into their hands and God allowed Israel to taste the bitter fruit of their rebellion. And friends, this should stand as a powerful warning to each of us this morning. God will not sit idly by as we continue to turn our backs in rebellion against Him. 
And God will not cheer you on in your sin. And Way to go. Keep going. It's so great you're turning your back. No, that is not what God will do. Not in his holiness. Not in his righteousness. Instead, God will allow us to walk the path of peril in the hopes of ultimately leading us to the place of repentance. And this is where we discover the good news in our stories this morning. Because as we saw last week in our study of the cycles and judges, God is also a God of amazing grace. He's a God who hears the cries of his people when they find themselves in the valley of weeping. The place where they recognize the cost of their sin. And so, just as God is sovereign in judgment, He's equally sovereign in deliverance. And in our passage this morning, we see this in God raising up judges to rescue His people from their oppression. Now, you might be thinking to yourself this morning, well, well Pastor Jason, you haven't told us much about these judges yet. I mean, we, we, we haven't even learned anything about these judges. And friends, there's a reason for that. It's because the judges aren't the point of the story. The God behind the judges is the point of the story. Friends, did you notice in our passage this morning, we we read 25 verses in chapter 3. And in those 25 verses, the term the Lord appears 13 times. Every other verse, it's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And friends, we we should understand the main hero in our stories this morning is not these three judges. The main hero is God. The God of sovereign grace that saves Israel. Look look at these verses from our passage. Verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishayim into his hands. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer named Ehud. Follow after me, Ehud said, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites in your hand. If you go to chapter 10, referring back to Shamgar and the Philistines, we read there, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you? From the Philistines. Again, referring back to Shamgar. Over and over again, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. It was God who delivered his people. And here's why this recognition is so important this morning. It's important because it reminds us today where our true hope is found. Where our true hope is found. Friends, our hope is not found in human leaders or in governments or in military might or in technology or in anything of this world. Our hope is found in the Lord. As King David reminds us in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is our hope, friends. God is our source of help. God is our deliverer. And oh my goodness, how we need to remember this truth today. In this world of pandemics and political division and racial strife and lawlessness and authoritarian governments and and on and on and on. Friends, who is our help? Where is our hope? I lift my eyes up and my hope comes from the Lord, from nothing else. If we've learned anything in recent years, it's that this world cannot save us. And the things of this world cannot save us. It's God who is our deliverer. 
And I can't help but wonder this morning, friends, if so many of our problems today are not simply the result of our failure to cry out to God. To cry out to God for deliverance. I was reminded of this this week. You guys know I love reading history. Some of my favorite periods of history to read are about the founding of our nation. I was reading this week about the the writing of our Constitution, the summer of 1887. Really interesting, during the Constitutional Convention, the the founding fathers had come together in Philadelphia to draft the Constitution to, to govern our nation. For five weeks, they toiled there in Philadelphia trying to come up with a governing document. And for five weeks, they continued to butt heads and they were stymied and they were discouraged. And many of them were in the verge of just giving up. But Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin stood up on June 28, 1787. And he said to the founding fathers, he said, Man, have we forgotten? Have we forgotten the one who saved us and delivered us from Great Britain? Have we forgotten the many miracles that every single one of us in this room saw God perform on our behalf? And have we forgotten how every day during the contest with Great Britain, we prayed in this very room for God to deliver us? Have we so quickly forgotten? And it was on that day that Benjamin Franklin called the Constitutional Convention back to prayer. And he said, let it be from this day forward that we start every day in prayer and that we invite a local clergy from the city to lead us in that service of prayer and that we cry out to the God of heaven to help us in this effort. And friends, the founding fathers say that that was the breakthrough that allowed them to ultimately produce what became the greatest governing document in the history of the world the United States Constitution. It was the call back to prayer, recognizing that God is our deliverer. Where does our help come from? Not from the wisdom of this world. Our help comes from the Lord. And I look at the problems in our world today and the division and the strife and the conflict and the hopelessness, and I wonder maybe we're just not desperate enough. Maybe God hasn't yet fully brought us to that place of weeping where we recognize our true need for Him. Maybe that's why we haven't cried out to the Lord yet. And that's a scary thought. But God is our deliverer. God is our hope. God is a God of sovereign grace. And so we're reminded of this sovereign grace of God in our passage But the second thing our passage reminds us of this morning in the story of these three judges, we're reminded of the surprising ways of God. Surprising ways of God. It's interesting. These three different characters in our passage this morning, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. I've always been a fan of uh, crime stories and mystery novels and television shows and movies. And if you're a fan of those kinds of stories, one of the, one of the things that I've always found interesting is, is the, the art or science of criminal profiling. 
right? You, you have these detective stories, and what they'll do is they'll, they'll look at all these different, you know, criminals and, and, and crimes that have been committed in the past, and they use those to, to form a profile of the type of person who commits that kind of a crime. And so once they form a profile, then they know, like, this is the kind of person that we're looking for. This is the likely candidate for who committed this particular crime. It's called criminal profiling. And I was thinking about this this week because if we were asked to make a profile of the kind of person that God uses based on the judges in our passage today, friends, we'd be very hard-pressed to form a profile looking at Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. I mean, these are three very different characters when we begin to understand who they were. This would be like asking somebody to watch the movie The Breakfast Club and write up a profile of the typical American teenager, right? I mean, like, you got the jock, you got the goth, you got the punk, you got the preppy, you got the nerd. It's like, well, what's the profile? There's no profile. They're all different, right? They're so very different. And that's exactly what we see in, in, in the judges that we have in our stories today. We'd be hard-pressed to form a profile. I mean, if we were looking at these stories and we were going to answer the question, I mean, what kind of person does God use? Right? Like, like, what kind of person would I expect God to work powerfully through in this world? Well, let's look at these three judges. We start out, we've got Othniel. And Othniel, his name literally means the Lion of God. Friends, this guy comes first in the book of Judges for a reason. It's because he's the model judge. I mean, he's the judge of all judges. He, he's from the tribe of Judah, from a family of faith. He, he's an uncompromised Israelite. He's married to an Israelite woman. I mean, one of the few people in the land who didn't marry into the pagan nations around them. He, he's from the family of Caleb, one of the great heroes of Israel. He's a proven warrior. Remember back in chapter 1? He went at his father-in-law's request to conquer this area of land in, in the promised land, right? This, this guy was the judge of judges. He's the model. And then we turn to Ehud in our second story this morning. And Ehud, the hindered hero, Ehud's from the tribe of Benjamin. Strike one. What's the problem with the tribe of Benjamin? Friends, there's nothing good said about Benjamin in the book of Judges. Starting in chapter 1, everything we read about Benjamin is compromise. Compromise, compromise. So God raises up Ehud. He's from Benjamin, strike one. Strike two, he's a left-handed man. What's the problem with that? Well, friends, in the ancient culture, even in many parts of the world today, to be left-handed is a sign of weakness. The right hand is the hand of strength. And so he's already got two strikes against him. He's a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. But very interestingly, the Hebrew word for left-handedness that they use of Ehud, the Hebrew word for left-handedness literally means hindered in the right hand. And so it's very possible that not only was he left-handed, but he may have even been disabled. His, his right hand may not have worked for some reason. Maybe it was paralyzed. Maybe it was shriveled up. Maybe withered. We, we don't know. But he was a left-handed man. I mean, this is the, the least likely guy to lead the nation of Israel against the king of Moab, Eglon. And then we look at the third judge in our passage this morning, Shamgar, the surprise soldier. Shamgar, it's not even a Hebrew name. It's a pagan name. 
He's probably fatherless. We don't, we don't have any mention of him having a father in our passage. Instead, Shambar is called the son of Anath. Anath is a woman's name. And Anath is probably his mother, who was named after the Canaanite god Anath, the Canaanite goddess of sex and war. So you have this guy who's probably from a spiritually compromised family, one of those Israelite families that intermingled with the pagans around them. And not only is he from a spiritually compromised family, he's, he's probably also a peasant. How do we know that? Because he fought the Philistines with an ox goad. What is an ox goad? It's a stick with a metal point on the end, and you use it to prod the cattle to keep them moving when they're plowing the fields. And this is the guy that God raised up to deliver the Philistines. I mean, if we were to make a profile here, you know, I mean, what is the kind of person that God uses? Here we see three different men, three different backgrounds, three different stories. I mean, you couldn't make a profile out of these guys. But friends, notice, in spite of all their differences, what's the one thing they all had in common? The one thing they all had in common was God's power working through them. God's power working through them. Othniel may have had the pedigree, but it was God who supplied the power. Ehud may have been a lefty, but he was God's right-hand man. Shamgar, he just had a stick. So what? His God can strike a heavy blow. We look at all three of these judges and their diversity and their backgrounds and their stories, and in every single case, it was God working through these guys. Friends, if we learn anything through the study of God's Word, it's that God is in the business of using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. All throughout the Bible, God takes average, ordinary men and women, and He moves powerfully through them to do His work in this world. What a great blessing and encouragement that is. We've seen that reality here in our own church over the years. God raising up faithful men and women from different backgrounds, and, and God raises them up, and he does powerful work through them. I was thinking this week, we, we, we have our own Othniels here, right? I mean, models of faithfulness from faithful families, and they grow up following the Lord, they grow up serving the Lord. I mean, I, I, I was thinking of Gail's son, Matt, this week. Reading a recent prayer letter, Matt and his wife, Deborah, they're over in Norway planting the first Presbyterian church in Norway. We, we have First Presbyterian, First Baptist, First Lutheran. We have those all over the place. This is literally the first Presbyterian church in Norway in decades. And here's this kid who was brought up in a faithful family to know the Lord, to serve the Lord, to honor the Lord, who's gone out on missions and now is doing incredible work for the kingdom in Norway, a country that decades ago turned their back on the Lord. And now faithful gospel-preaching churches are being planted there. And we've had our own Ehuds here at Lakes Free. I was thinking this week of our own one-armed warrior, Kevin Lovedahl. Many of you guys remember Kevin Lovedahl. Tragically went home to the Lord four years ago on a car accident. Kevin Lovedahl had lost his left hand earlier in life in an electrical accident. He had only one arm. 
But God used this hindered hero in powerful ways. Faithfully served for years here at Lakes Free Church on our building and grounds team. In fact, there's hardly a spot on this church that you can look at and not see Kevin's thumbprint on it. That's no exaggeration. He worked in our local prison ministry, missionary evangelism to corrections, led dozens and dozens of people to Jesus, going into the prisons, sharing the good news of the gospel. Blessed and encouraged countless little kids in our Awana ministry over the years. Faithfully served in our men's ministry, discipling guys here at our church. One arm. But he said, God, you've given me one hand and that's good enough for your power to work through me. I'm going to trust you, Lord. And we've had our shamgars. I think of my dear friend Jason Brown, who passed away of cancer last year. Kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Young man who fell into drug abuse and substance abuse and addiction. Who was miraculously saved by Jesus Christ. Spent the remainder of his life sharing the good news of Jesus with other people caught up in addiction. Running recovery groups and helping other people in their battle for pursuit of God and conquering their addictions. Yeah, we've had our Othniels here. We've had our Ahuts. We've had our Shamgars. Friends, let me tell you something. Do you ever wonder if you're the kind of person that God could use to do powerful things for his kingdom? Make no mistake, if you are ordinary, you are just right. Because God takes ordinary people, and if they're willing to be used by him, he can do extraordinary things. Like our judges this morning, you just need to be willing and then step out in faith, and God will use you in incredible ways. And I'll tell you something, there is nothing greater in this world than to see God's power at work through you. He can take any one of us. The third thing we're reminded of in our passage this morning, maybe the greatest message of all in the book of Judges, is the supreme peace we find in God. The supreme peace of God. You know, one of the most fascinating aspects of the book of Judges, at least in my opinion, is how God uses the deliverers he raises up to point us to the ultimate deliverer to come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, in each of the judges that we see this morning in our passage, in every one of them we see a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. I, I Just think about it. This is so cool. Think about these three judges that we looked at this morning. You have Othniel, the Lion of God from the tribe of Judah, the model Israelite. You have Ehud, a man of unattractive form who didn't fit the cultural expectations of a deliverer. You have Shamgar, a person of curious and humble origins who didn't fight with the weapons of this world. Friends, who does this sound like? This is Jesus these guys are pointing us to. God raises up these, these judges to ultimately point us to the greatest judge, the greatest deliverer to come. They, they all point us to Jesus. And, and there's one more crucial fact in our stories today that, that points us to Jesus, and, and it's found at the end of our two cycles. If you look at verse 11 and verse 30, we, we see two interesting observations. We see that the nation had rest while the judges were alive. But when the judges died, the people fell back into their rebellion. 
in both cases, in both of these cycles this morning. When the judges died following their victories, the land had rest 40 years after Othniel, 80 years after Ehud. But after that, the judges die and the rest ends. And so the most significant message in our passage this morning is simply this, friends. We need a better judge. We need a more perfect deliverer. We we need a Savior who does not die and whose rest never ends. And this is where the book of Judges points us to Jesus, our true deliverer. Friends, remember in the book of Luke, we, we studied Luke two years ago. Jesus' first public words in his ministry were in a synagogue in Galilee. And he opened up the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 61, and he read for the people in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee, the year in the Old Testament when all debts were forgiven and all slaves were released. And Jesus says, if you want to know that kind of deliverance, well, here I am. This is why God has sent me. This is why the Father has sent me. Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago to bring us true salvation and true freedom and true healing and a rest that never ends. And we can be confident in these promises because Jesus is the judge whose reign never ends. He's the judge who did not die. And it's because he rules and reigns today that we can look to him as the basis for our hope. And so I say to you this morning, if you are here today, friends, and you are need, you are in need of salvation. You are here today weighted down by your guilt and your shame as a result of your rebellion against God. Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit. To those who acknowledge their need for God. Look to me, he says. And if you're here this morning and you're looking for freedom from your addictions, freedom from your sins and the repeated cycle of rebellion against God, Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He can give you your freedom. And if you're here this morning and you're in need of healing, Jesus says, look to me because I am the one who brings recovery of sight to the blind. And sometimes he brings that healing in this life. And other times, like the dear woman of faith that I spoke at her memorial service yesterday, who spent her last years struggling with Alzheimer's disease, sometimes the healing comes in the next life. And today she's free. And that's Jesus who does that. And we can count on his faithfulness because he's the deliverer who did not die. And I want to tell you, friends, you can trust him too. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for our passage this morning. And it is a 
a passage with three interesting stories and three fascinating characters. And yet, more than the judges we read about in these passages, Lord, we read about you, our great God of faithfulness, and the surprising ways that you use average people to do extraordinary things in this world, and how you are our ultimate deliverer. God of amazing grace, the God of true faithfulness and true healing and true liberation. And Jesus, I just pray that each of us today would have a fresh vision of who you are and that we would walk away from this morning inspired and reminded that we serve a great God. We lift our eyes up to the hills and where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord. And God, as we remember that, may it inspire us to be people of great faith. And may it inspire us to to turn to you and say, Lord, use me. I'm just ordinary, Lord. But I'm going to trust that you can use me. And I don't have many gifts, God, but I've got a stick. And I'm going to trust that you can use this stick for your honor and glory. And friends, God can work through you in ways that you can't even imagine if you simply let him. And more than anything, Lord, we, we remind, we're reminded this morning of your son, Jesus, that you sent in this world, the deliverer who did not die, the one who brings ultimate freedom and ultimate deliverance and ultimate healing. And Lord, may we look to you and may you encourage us this morning with great hope and confidence, knowing that you are our true deliverer. If there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know the good news and the great joy of following you in a personal relationship, I pray that maybe even here this morning they might turn to you and confess their sins to you and seek you today and choose to follow you as their personal Savior and Lord and that they might know the true joy of walking with Jesus in a personal relationship. We thank you, God, for your amazing grace and your incredible faithfulness. And we pray all this in your great name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you, and have a great week. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.